Welcome to the Food Minded Fellow podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Smith. This week on the podcast, I catch up with some old friends, two Harvard graduates who are raising shiitake mushrooms in an incredibly sustainable way. With some hard work and ingenuity, a very minimal footprint, these two gentlemen are raising an incredible product that's even found its way onto some Michelin-starred restaurants' menus. All right, so I'm Truman French, one of the founding members of MBM with Tucker. I'm Tucker Forsheimer. I'm a co-founder of Martha's Vineyard Mycological, and we're standing up at the top of our very icy, muddy driveway off of Peaked Hill at the Mushroom Ranch. Actually, at the time, it was just Tucker and I up on the Mushroom Ranch. Truman had gone out to get some of their growing medium, oak logs, from a local preservation effort. But we all caught up later at their home, and I've stitched the conversations together to make it a little more coherent. Tucker and Truman first met at Harvard University. It was a OEB 54 class at Harvard, which was a biology of fungi class. Truman is the kind of guy who even remembers the course number. I had just gotten back from a semester abroad, and Tucker had as well, I think either the, the previous year or the year before that. And we were kind of feeling down and out about the state of the world. He'd been down in Argentina, I'd been in Brazil, and done a lot of traveling and seen kind of the, the scope of what the anthro impact had been in, as, as far as deforestation and food systems. And him and I kind of were in the same class and really being isolated and not interacting all that much and the professor kind of saw this going on and kind of sat us down next to each other and was like, look, you guys have a lot in common. Explore it a little bit. Tucker and Truman quickly became good friends. With their shared experiences in South America, they had both seen firsthand the devastating carbon footprint created by the cattle industry there. They began kicking around the idea of going into business together. So they put on their thinking caps. Why don't we try to grow something that actually has a displacing effect, a disruptive effect. I, I hate using that word because it sounds like I'm starting a tech company, but, uh, you know, a, a disruptive effect in the food world, um, at least for our area. Start small, not, we're not trying to take over the world necessarily, but, you know, let's, let's see if we can fill our days with an activity that makes sense on every level. Among other ideas, shiitake mushrooms fit this ethos perfectly. As far as why we settled on shiitakes, we'd, we'd talked about truffles for a long time, but... Truffles are hard to grow. The truffle business is all about economy, about making wealth. They wanted to focus their sights on a sustainable protein. And they especially didn't want to... Have a big carbon footprint and, and just be this complete superficial participant in agriculture. It's not a meaningful thing. We thought that growing something that was really more of a food and less of an aromatic or a garnish would be great because it would fill people's bellies and them buying it would mean that they're choosing to buy not animal proteins because um, that's how we would market it. As a non-processed, low-impact protein alternative that rivals some of the best meat products on the market, but Tucker and Truman weren't the first to try shiitake farming on the island. We weren't the first pe people by any mean to grow shiitakes on the island. It had been done on a super small scale since 
the 80s, really when shiitake cultivation became prevalent in the U.S. Truman is an incredible wealth of knowledge. And though I love their mushrooms, one of my favorite parts about visiting their farm is getting the history lesson. My understanding is the vineyard was food positive up until about the mid-1970s. And then I think what started to happen was the USDA started to regulate quite heavily. And so that was, they closed the slaughterhouses because they were being regulated and they closed the big dairies. And so that's kind of when you saw the conversion of most of the agricultural land into subdivisions and housing. And so when I was a kid, it was kind of all the farms were either shutting down and selling out and turning into subdivisions or they're kind of just struggling to get by and they were working second jobs as carpenters or laborers of some sort. And then kind of the premiums started to be placed on having locally sourced food, knowing where it comes from, the impact, the pesticide footprint, that sort of thing. And just the general awareness of the health benefits of knowing the origins of what you're eating became prevalent. And so you started to see kind of the resurgence of agriculture here and that, I mean, the the case in point I always like to give is morning glory. When I was a kid, that was kind of like this down and out shack on the side of the road. You kind of just went to and you, you bought a pumpkin or whatever it was for Halloween. And you kind of felt bad for whatever was going on there. And now, <laughs> now you see what it is. And that's, people are, seems like are absolutely much more conscientious about the impact that their cons consumptive habits are having on the food system. So These days... Morning Glory Farm is a vibrant hub for local and regional organic foods. Tucker and Truman were attracted in part to the island because it has nearly ideal conditions for raising shiitakes. The environment of the island is perfect for shiitake agriculture. And I mean perfect in a way that means we wouldn't have to add anything at all to the natural process of growing a shiitake. All we would have to do is seed its natural growth medium, which is everywhere on the island because this is a second or third growth forest that we're standing here in. Without getting into too much technical detail, shiitakes are traditionally raised on oak logs. Mycelium, or the root structure of the mushrooms, is impregnated into the logs. That root structure feeds on the sap inside the logs for about three years, in which time it produces mushrooms. If you'd like to learn more about this process, you can find an article that I wrote for Edible Vineyards on my website. The abundance of oak, the humidity, and the temperature conditions made Martha's Vineyard a nearly perfect place to grow shiitakes. Even up in Chomark, where it looks very mature and, you know, like a climax community, it's, it's oak, it's a colonizing species. We're not totally sure what the, for, the climax community on the island looked like. There probably hadn't been one for a long time because there were lots of Native Americans living here who had their own forest management system. Um, so who knows what the climax forest looks like, but through an accident of massive deforestation up until... 1969, combined with a totally laissez-faire forest policy, from then till now, we have this really beautiful secondary forest, which just happens to be almost completely oak. One of the core values of their business is to have a minimal impact on the environment. It's also a species that can be managed really sustainably. A lot of the clearing that we're doing now um, 
is actually part of conservation projects to maintain habitat mosaic, which is what they've done in Japan for a long time. They found that since the Fukushima accident in 2013, um, actually a lot of the shiitake forests in northern Japan that had been managed for shiitake wood, so essentially thinned every 25 to 30 years, um, that forest was abandoned because people were concerned about cesium contamination and the biodiversity in those forests, plant life, animal life, both has declined really precipitously in the six years following the accident because they stopped managing it like they had been. There's, there's an interesting ecology story in there, but we thought how cool would it be just to treat this forest like they've treated their oak forests there um, and, you know, take take this accidental ecosystem essentially and take advantage of it without disrupting or disturbing it in any way. And so that's that's what we're trying to do. There were already forest management systems in place on the island, but no one was really taking advantage of this valuable growing medium. We were observing there was a lot of clearing going on and it was basically all just being chipped and there had to be a better use for it. So if you can turn base unused biomass back into a protein source, that's a win. And I mean, that was circling back towards our origins where we'd just been in South America where everything's being cut down for cattle. So we wanted to come up with a protein that could be kind of grown sustainably on the island. And the systems that they've built really are sustainable in a tangible way. The, the reason why the, the forest or the ecosystem here looks the way it is, it, it was always thin because being an island, there was no outside fuel sources. So they were cutting firewood out of the forest. And oak's very interesting is when you cut an, an oak tree, it doesn't kill it. It does something called coppicing, where it just regenerates out of the same stump. And so if you go around on the forest on the vineyard, everything's kind of growing in circles. And what that was is there was a, a tree that was cut down and out of the stump regenerated all the, the trees that you currently see. And so with a, like a management plan, you'd be able to do this in perpetuity. They estimate that with 100 acres of oak forest and just five gallons of diesel fuel per week, they could continue to produce mushrooms at their current rate essentially forever. But it wasn't just the abundance of oak, nor the ideal growing conditions, that drew them to Martha's Vineyard in the first place. It's interesting here because coming from when I was living in Boston or from New York in Tucker's instance, everyone has these ideals of how they want to live and it's we love sustainability, we love nature, we love all these things, but what does that actually mean? And I think being on island, at least for me, it allows me to kind of live clo closer to my ideal than I can really anywhere else. There would be, I'd be hard pressed if I was living in Boston to live close to sustainably or participate in a sustainable food system. I would have to have my expensive apartment and get a job that paid very well to afford my expensive apartment and then I'm banking or I'm doing something in finance and then I'm supporting mining projects in tropical countries or big agriculture grade stuff in tropical countries and then I'm not sustainable anymore. We're here, you kind of have a little bit less, but you're living in a beautiful place and you can participate in the way you want to participate, at least for me. When I first moved to Martha's Vineyard, someone told me that you have to suffer for a while when you first live here. At the time, I had no idea what that meant. I now understand that to mean that you have to pay your dues. There's a transient community on the island. People come and go often. And it's hard for people to invest in someone unless they know you're gonna stick around 
and that you'll be part of that community. You absolutely do have to demonstrate, have to prove to this place that you want to be here. And I, I benefited massively by being associated with Truman and him literally taking me around everywhere and introducing me to everyone for the first three years. But there, in, or, in order to benefit from a system of goodwill and, and barter and community, you have to put something into it. And it's not judged by a number, it's judged by people's goodwill. And I think that it's a much, it's a much more rewarding system to be a part of, but it's not easier. There's no, there's no exploitative capitalism going on in community goodwill. Before Tucker and Truman found their home in Chilmark, they farmed in a few different places on the island. This is actually the third place that we have farmed mushrooms on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, the, the first place was in the back of Truman's friend's house. These days, their farm produces as much as a thousand pounds per week. Their mushrooms can be found on the islands, Cape Cod, Boston, and even in New York City. But when they first started, their operation was quite small. We inoculated, I don't know, maybe a hundred logs or so. Um, and basically forgot about it. Truman was living on the island, helping his father do stonework. Tucker was living in New York City, doing data analytics for a restaurant group. When Truman called Tucker. He said that there was a mushroom growing. They had put one of the logs in the horse barn. It was growing in, like, February or something. And did, did I want to come try to sell the mushrooms from that first crop of logs? Tucker quit his job doing data analytics, packed up his bags, and moved to Martha's Vineyard. We were scoping out some other land to plant some hazelnut trees, thinking that maybe that would be a good, a good side business. So I picked rocks out of a field in Chilmark. I lived on a futon in Edgartown. They picked a few handfuls of mushrooms a day, filled some paper bags, and drove around in hopes that they could sell them. Somehow that filled an entire summer. It was a very vineyard experience. When they first got started, they inherited some equipment from a farmer who had tried to raise shiitakes, but was faced with an invasive species that shut down their operation. Don't worry, you'll find out what happened to them in a future episode of this podcast. That first year, we were that. Like, Heidi had given us her old tents. We had maybe 500 logs, and we probably had, I don't know, 25 pounds a week, something yeah, like that. Big, I remember our biggest week was 4th of July, and I think we did 80 pounds, and that was... That's a lot. Really? Yeah, yeah we, had, that was, we had one 80-pound week. They attribute some of their early success to Dan Sauer at 7A Foods. I think that basically Dan said, like, yeah, sure, we'll make a sandwich out of it, bring us whatever you grow. Small-scale agriculture and sustainability has become kind of the paradigm. People are much more willing to spend a premium on it because they have done a lot of it themselves. If, if you've tried to grow arugula in your backyard and you realize the amount of time it takes to grow arugula, you're willing to pay a little bit more for it when someone else has done that. It's not just a finished product. You go in the supermarket, it's just a bag of salad. Let's pick it out. Oh, that's expensive. It's like, wow, that took hours and hours and hours to wash, to hand trim, to do whatever it is. And that was the instance with Dan and the mushrooms. He took one look at them and goes, wow, like these are great. Like I know what it takes to produce these. It's a lot. The price is okay. 
That's not, that's not what he said. He said, cut $3 a pound off the price and I'll buy them. <laughs> which, which we did. <laughs> I worked with Dan at 7A Foods for a while. And let me tell you, he made a heck of a sandwich with those shiitake mushrooms. We took it really seriously, too. And I, I think at least, well, I don't know, for Dan at 7A, Dan Nutriman, Dan had tried to grow shiitakes himself. He had a couple logs and I think pulled them off. So he got what we were doing wanted the product because he knew it and I think just we struck him as sincere enough to actually follow through with it. That first summer was an experiment that seemed to be having some real success. So we were both figuring out what the business would be like, what we were selling, how we were selling it, who we were selling it to, and what we were going to do because that first year we literally did everything together. They decided early on that chefs would be the perfect target market. If you're a chef in a restaurant, even out on Martha's Vineyard now, which probably took longer to catch up to that nationwide trend, people are going, they, they see your food on Instagram, they read about it, their friends tell them about it, and they go to have whatever you're giving them. It's, ex it's experiential. Right, yeah. Um, so... Keeping all that in mind and being a small farm, I think that we kind of aspired to serve those chefs before the consumers themselves, um, just as a way to ba basically ta take advantage of the chef as an educator and have fewer touch points, have fewer total customers by going directly to chefs and being able to spend much more time on each one and have a larger impact that way. So we, we sort of conceived of ourselves as not, not the first by any means, but we wanted to be the best service farm by producing one product, by doing it the best. And that's, you know, we could have gone the health route, we could have gone the sustainability route. There's a lot of great things about what we do, but what we chose to put out there to our customers is that it's just the best. It's the best shiitake. You're not going to find a better shiitake. We're going to trim it really high so you're not even paying for the stem weight. They painstakingly grade every mushroom cap into A and B. A being the absolutely perfect caps, and B being just a little less perfect. Because we're selling the best product, that's our mission. Like, it, do, it does really matter, and, and that has made it really fun to work with chefs because as as passionate, creative people, I think they've really picked up on what we're trying to do. At MVM, they only grow one product, and their aim is to make sure that it's perfect. It's certainly been challenging to keep up with the changes in distribution over the last three years as we've grown, you know, 15 times the size. Um, and, you know, we started out with eight clients on island, and now we have about 85 through the Cape, Vineyard, Boston, and New York. Um, not all of which are which I manage directly anymore, but still the majority. Um, we do use a distributor in New York who I still fight with about how mushrooms get to people because I really do care about it. Because we, we do one thing, and if we can't do one thing perfectly, what's the point? One pretty amazing thing to point out is that as they've grown their production, they haven't grown their team. 
they've focused their energy on building efficiencies to produce more product with the same footprint. From the beginning, it started out, there was three of us working out of my ex-girlfriend's farm with 600 logs, and there's still three of us working out there. And so we've managed to scale 15 times with using the same amount of labor, and it's just figuring out how to do it a little bit more efficiently. And there's no, there's no model to follow. It's not like I can go to the University of Kansas page and pull up how to grow corn and see how to do it most efficiently. It doesn't exist. There isn't really a, a right or wrong way to do this. And so it's, it's just a lot of trial and error. I, yeah, I would like to also throw in there that, that Truman is an autodidact visionary when it comes to that. And with, with many of the things on the farm, I was ready to just kind of be like, okay, good. We know how to do that. Like, let's move on to this next thing. Or like, maybe we can try growing this. And every time Truman would be like, no, this, this can work better like this, or we can just do another 200 pounds a week. Additional labor is not just expensive. It's hard to come by on an island with finite resources. So they're forced to use their imagination. I don't, I don't assume that most people conceive of problems in the way that Truman does. The farm itself is shockingly simple. With just a series of tents, a walk-in cooler, and a water bath made from a shipping container that they've sunken into the ground. But no matter how many efficiencies they build into their systems, there's still a finite number of mushrooms they can produce per week. That's also been a challenge for our business, too, for MVM, because it's a premium brand, and for a good reason, because the mushrooms are premium mushrooms. But that doesn't mean that they have to be. You look at other premium brands and it's for things like, or food brands at least, it's like truffles, it's aged DOCG balsamic vinegar, it's, I don't know, like Hokkaido uni. These are wild things whose environment is limited, whose stocks are declining, bluefin tuna. Those are premium food items, but not for the same reason that our shiitakes are premium food items. And so we can produce a ton more shiitakes without losing the quality at all. It's just how we're producing them. And it's a sustainable system. Uh, so we, we've, we've got a paradigm shift in the shiitake market where right. we've created a better shiitake than that's currently on the market. It's the same thing if you looked at apples 80 years ago versus apples now. There's better apples on the market now. It's not that apples have become more expensive. It's just right. that they've gotten better. And we have a similar product, we feel, anyway. The superior quality of their product has not gone unnoticed. And it's found its way into some local restaurants in some pretty surprising ways. I would throw out a general shout out to everyone who has taken our mushrooms on an Italian menu or a French menu or something that they have no business being on and just because it's a product that they believed in the story of. You know, like, Chatham Bar's Inn or something. Somewhere with a New England menu that's willing to take a flyer on a Donko Shiitake mushroom because it does, in fact, correspond with their local food values, who can see through, you know, it not fitting on their style of plates at all. I, I, you know, even, like, the Harbor View. Like, Patrice is French. He's, you know... He puts shiitakes on... He has a lot of Japanese-inspired dishes, but 
He sees how beautiful it is. He wants to support local farms. And he figures out something to do with it. And I think the amount of creativity has just been amazing to see across the board. And I think people need to understand the, the power that their consumptive choices have. By Patrice choosing to put that on, he literally is making our, our life and farm and whole ethos possible. And it's it doesn't take very many choices of that nature to create a, a situation like we have. We only have 85 clients. We only need to convince 85 people to participate in this to make it work. And so people need to understand that their individual choices do have these very tangible impacts in farming and local farming in particular. Although not everyone has the opportunity to shop for these delectable mushrooms, our consumptive habits have a direct impact on the world around us. I encourage you to support your local farmers, to support all your local businesses for that matter, especially in trying times as we find ourselves in now. Stay safe. To learn more about this podcast, visit my website, foodmindedfellow.com. You can visit my merch store, where I've got some t-shirts, a sweatshirt, a bag, and some podcast merchandise coming soon. Tune in next week when I meet Heidi Feldman, the farmer who had tried to produce shiitakes, but now makes some incredible sea salt from our vineyard waters. This podcast was brought to you in part by the Massachusetts Office of Travel and Tourism.